Hey, this is Andre Butler, pastor of Faith Experience Church. You're listening to the Faith Experience Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope that this message helps you engage your faith and experience the future God has for you. Amen. Amen. Today we're beginning a series entitled, Why I Believe. You know, I grew up as a preacher's kid uh, in a large church, and like most preacher's kids, I grew up uh, being taught to and being expected to believe in Jesus. But there came a point in my life where I had to make a decision myself about Jesus. You know, faith doesn't come by osmosis. So there had to come a point where I had to look at the evidence uh, about Jesus look at the evidence that proved what the Bible said about Jesus and decide for myself if it was sufficient, if it was enough for me to believe as well. And so I did, and I chose to believe, and I'm glad that I did. But I, I understand that there might be some people who are here today or who might hear this later who maybe aren't there yet. Maybe you uh, uh, just are skeptical about Christianity. Or maybe you do believe, but you're not so sure that you should. Maybe some people uh, think that the idea of believing in a man who was born of a virgin, a man who did miracles, a man who died and, and rose again, proving that he was the son of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who created this world with his words a man who is now living in heaven with God. For some people, that might be a, lo- a little bit much right now. Maybe you, you, you're looking at that, and, and yet the way you're wired is that, you know, common sense and philosophy and science are really your go-tos for determining what's true in this world, for, for forming your worldview. And so faith, faith-based answers to fact-based questions don't seem to be enough to you. Maybe you're in a position where you see believing in Jesus, not to mention living your life according to what he taught, as a wild leap of faith. Well, if that's you, I'm not mad at you. I I don't blame you. There are so many belief systems in the world that it can be hard sometimes to figure out what is actually true. But I do ask that you allow me to take you on a journey over the next couple of weeks, and show you why I believe. And I believe that by the time we get done doing that, you're going to see the truth and you'll be able to choose to believe as well. You know, I love movies, and one of my favorite characters is Indiana Jones. Anybody remember the Indiana Jones movies? Now, if you got your hand up, you just proved that you are a little older than many people in this room. But the Indiana Jones movies were great, and the best one was the last one. Uh, it, you know, that's everybody says that, right? And it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. They were chasing after the Holy Grail of Jesus. And so he finally gets to this place where his father is dying. He needs that Holy Grail to save his life. He, he comes right to the cavern between him and the room that held the Holy Grail, and it was just that. It was a cavern. I mean, you take a step out, you die. But he had a book that said that you have to take a leap of faith to get there. So he took a moment, and, and, you know, at first he's looking around. He's saying, you know, nobody can jump this, and you can see there's no way to get over here. But he just kind of closed his eyes, and he took a deep breath, and he chose to believe, and he stepped out. And when he landed, what do you know? There was a road there. There was, a, you know, a, a, just a, kind of a path there, and he was thrilled, and he was able to run across it. And that's where I believe some of us are going to end up by the end of this time. Right now, you might say, I, I just don't see how you get from where you are to believing in Jesus, where I am to believing in Jesus. But if you'll take the time to really look at what the Bible has to say and what the the evidence that we're about to look at has to say, I think you're going to find that when you take that leap of faith, you're going to find that you're standing on truth. Now, for those in here who happen to be Christians, of course, uh, you already believe, but I think this message is going to help you as well. You know, most of us know the basics, right? Big God, baby Jesus, our sin, the cross, the resurrection. Yet, sometimes we don't have all the answers to the questions that people might ask us. You know, the way 
uh, this world is today, many people will, will only get their answers about God from the people they know. You know, people like to treat you like you're Google, like you're their personal Bible search engine, right? So I want to make sure when they Google you, you're ready. You're able to answer these questions. Not to mention in this day and age where, where faith is under such attack in our families and our workplace and entertainment and media, you know, and the reason why it's under so much attack is to shake your faith. And if not to eliminate it, it's important to go back over why I believe why, what I believe, to, to reestablish these things in my heart. So this is going to help you as well. And I think uh, ultimately we're going to be equipped to have the spiritual conversations that God wants us to have with people in our world so we can help them believe in Jesus as well. So let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That cannot be hard to find. And today I'm going to give you two reasons why I believe that God is real. Somebody, somebody say, God is real. I know some people say, well, I don't believe that yet. That's all right. Everybody around you just said it for you. So, but I want to give you two reasons. Next week I'm going to give you another two, and then, of course, on Easter we'll finish strong with this series. So number one reason is that the earth has been designed. The earth has been designed. So we'll start in the very first scripture in the Bible, and it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So notice that the Bible is talking about the beginning, and often when we read this, we kind of, uh, I think, take that word, and we go a little too far with it because it's not telling us this happened at the beginning of God. This just happened at the beginning of earth. This is the story of the beginning of, of earth and the story ultimately at the beginning of man. That's important to recognize. Uh, in fact, I, I saw this great video online. It's pretty popular now. I, I couldn't show it to you because it's on YouTube and it's illegal to show YouTube videos publicly. I was tempted to do it anyway, but that would be wrong to be at church breaking the law. To, anyway, so I think y'all get it. So I thought about it, though, because it was so good. So I got to try to do my own version of it, I guess. But there was, you know, a debate. There was a debate between a guy who, you know, didn't believe in God and a guy who did. And a guy who didn't believe in God, he said, all right, I want you to tell me where did God come from? And, you know, that's a question that some people have asked. And we go, man, you know, ooh, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that. And this guy's answer is so deep. I'm going to have to read some of it to you. But Genesis 1.1 really demonstrates it. He, he went on to say that you must be thinking about the wrong God. He said the God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. If he is, he's not God. Time, space, and matter all have to come into existence at the same instance. For example, or think about it, if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? If you had matter but no space, it couldn't be. And if there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? I know we're getting deep. Y'all just stay with me. Stay with me. You cannot have any of these independently. They have to come into existence at the same time. And the Bible answers this question or answers this issue in 10 words. In the beginning, that's time. God created the heavens, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. That means that the God that created the heavens and the earth had to be sitting outside of it. Like my iPad. I got, still got my iPad mini. It's a couple of generations old. I love it anyway, so don't mess with me. But the people that created this aren't living in it, walking around, putting words on it. They were on the outside of it, and they created it. And in the same way, God sat on the outside of, of, of existence as we know, of this universe, and he created it with his words. 
I like what this guy went on to say. He said that if God is limited by time, he's not God. He is outside of the universe. He's above it. He's beyond it. He's in it. He's through it. He's unaffected by it. So your question of where did God come from assumes a limited God. But the God that I worship is not limited by time, space, or matter. And then he said, if I could put the infinite God in my three-pound brain, he wouldn't be worth worshiping anyway. That's a good point. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He sat outside of it and created the world that we, are, we live in. In fact, Isaiah 40 and verse 22 says it this way, have you not been paying attention? Have you not been listening? Haven't you heard these stories all your life? Don't you understand the foundation of all things? God sits high above the round ball of earth. So the earth can't be flat, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> the people look like mere ants. He stretches out the skies like a canvas, yes, like a tent canvas to live under. So it's like a family who goes hunting, or not hunting, let's say camping. What do they do? Well, they, they put up a tent so they can live in the tent. What God did was he put up a tent called earth so we can live in it. Okay, y'all with me, y'all with me. I'm just going to believe God that y'all with me. John 1, notice what it said about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. Or in fact, it says the Word already existed. So in the beginning of this earth, the Word already existed. It was existing before the earth did. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He, so when we're talking about the Word, we're talking about a person, existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. So who are we talking about here? So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. So he's telling us here that in the beginning, Jesus already existed. We will read it over again and just put Jesus in where we see the word. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and he helped create everything. So we can see that, of course, Jesus is a part of Team God. If you studied the Bible, you find that God is really a three-part being. He's God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Ghost. He's three, and yet he's one. That's why I say Team God, because across the way, in a few months, the Lions will start to play, and they're made up of 53 players. Each one of them is a lion, but then together they're the Lions. In the same way, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God. Together, they are God. And what we're seeing is God, including Jesus, once again created this world that we live in. In fact, it goes a step farther, and this does, and tells us that God came and lived in the world that he created. Now, I don't know how many of you guys know this, these movies, but I love the Tron movies. Anybody know Tron? Okay, okay, all right. All right, I'm impressed. It's the thing about Tron was a man created a computer program and then somehow ended up going into the program and living in it. And that's exactly what God has done with us. And so we can see that the Bible teaches us that God created this world from the outside, for lack of a better term. So let's go a step farther then. Psalm 19, if I, uh, if I didn't make your head spin or if I did, don't worry, we're done with the tough stuff. I think it's cool, though. I think it's amazing to think about the fact that God sits outside of our universe. In fact, that's really where heaven is. That's another conversation. Psalm 19, verse 1. We're still proving the point that the earth has been designed by God. That's one reason why I believe. It says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. The message translation says God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Now, when the Bible talks about the heavens here, 
uh, like it is in Genesis 1, is talking about the atmosphere and outer space. That's what this scripture is referring to ultimately. The atmosphere, the sky as we know it, and then, of course, outer space. And the Bible says it proclaims the glory or the greatness of God. Well, if you were to look at the original Hebrew, because the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew, the word there means to score with a mark as a tally or record or to count. To help you with that, it just is simply saying to act as proof, to act as evidence. So we could almost say the heavens act as proof or they act as evidence of the greatness of God. They prove that God exists and that God is great. If you were to uh, go on to Romans chapter 1, in verse 20 or verse 19, it says this, and this is talking about people that God is not happy with. And it says, if you were to read verse 18, that he's not happy because they know the truth, but they refuse to live their lives according to it. What truth is that? They know the truth about God. How? He's talking about people who, who are not believers. God's saying everybody already knows the truth about God. You already know. How? Because he has made it obvious to them. God says it's obvious that I exist. Well, in what way is it obvious? For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature so that they have no excuse, no excuse for not knowing God. So God is saying here that all you've got to do is look at the world, look at the sky, look at, look at this podium, look at the people around you, and that's all proof that I'm here, that I exist, that I am divine, that I'm all-powerful. God says it's obvious. All you got to do is look, and you can see that I am God. And, and, and you know what? He has a point. It amazes me every once in a while. People say, oh, you know, you believe in God. Prove that he exists. And I'm like, you're a proof he exists. But then at the same time, we are very quick to believe that this whole world came as a result of an explosion. And then we say, well, where did the materials come from that caused the explosion? There's no answer. It's, it's, it's really wishful thinking, and that's why God was angry, uh, because people don't want God to exist. They don't want to have to live their life. They don't want to have to answer for their actions. They don't want to uh, accept that there could be a heaven and there could be a hell. They don't want to, for there to be a right and a wrong. So let me create a different uh worldview and live within that worldview so I don't have to worry about those things. It's like the, that old story, The Emperor's New Clothes. Anybody remember that story? Right? And, of course, the idea is that the emperor, you know, he, he hires some charlatans to create him, to create for him the, the most beautiful, you know, outfit ever. And they, you know, so these guys, they start working, right? People walk in and they're like, well, I don't see anything. They're like, you don't see it? It's just so beautiful. You don't see these colors. You don't see this. You don't see that. It's gorgeous. And, and, and after a while, the person's kind of looking around at other folk and they're saying, oh, maybe I'm the only one that don't see it. And I don't want people to think there's something wrong with me. So they're like, yeah, you're right. It's gorgeous. Oh, man. And eventually the king walks in there and he's like, okay, I don't see anything. And they, but he doesn't say anything. And everybody's talking about how great it looks and how gorgeous it is. And he's like, well, man, if I don't join in, they might think I'm incompetent. So he's like, yeah, I got to say it too. This is beautiful. And so he wears his new clothes on a parade in the middle of his kingdom, which, of course, means he's walking through the kingdom naked. And everybody's talking about how beautiful this is and how great it looks. And finally, a little girl grabs her mama by the hand and says, why is the emperor naked? And that's the world we live in. Everybody, oh, there couldn't be a God. Oh, da, da, da. All because, well, you know, they don't want to have to serve. God says, I've given you all the evidence you need. Look at yourself. 
Look at the world. Look at the sky. It takes far more faith to believe that it happened as a result of an explosion than it does to just recognize a very simple fact, a scientific fact. Everything that is designed has a designer. called the anthropic principle. And it makes sense. When you see a painting, you know there must be a painter. You see a car, that was a manufacturer. I mean, you go through any area of life, and there's always cause and effect. And when you look at the world, it is clear that it's been designed. In fact, you can, it's very clear it was designed for life. Just once that if gravitational force was altered by point zero, then I have to do 37 more zeros. Life on this planet could not exist. Do you realize that's, that's 38 zeros? If that was just that much of an adjustment, none of us could be here, but somehow we are. Let's, let's, let's move beyond just the planet. Let's just talk about the human body. This was something that was stated by the atheist Richard Dawkins. He said, the human body is a walking computer. Each cell nucleus contains a digitally coded database, larger in information content than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together. And this figure is for each cell, not all of the cells of a body put together. You think that this phone is something special but there's probably more data just in a part of your body than in this phone. And that's true for all of us. That happened by accident? No, clearly the human body has been designed. And if there's a, something's been designed, there must be a designer. When it's all said and done, uh, the only religious sense system that actually fits the scientific evidence about this world I, I don't have time to go into everything. The only religious system that happens to fit it is theism. In other words, that there's one infinite and personal being who is beyond the finite physical universe. And, of course, if you start talking about theism, you're down to basically three religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that's it. What are the dominant religions in the world today? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. There's some other ones, but the dominant ones? The big three. Well, I believe because the earth has been designed, and I believe it's been designed by God. Let me give you another reason. Number two, the Bible is a miracle. The Bible itself, many of us have it on a, a tablet or, or on a phone, but, of course, I've got one up here too. My preaching Bible, which I don't use to preach no more, but, you know. But the Bible is a miracle. It's just another proof, I believe, that, that what the Bible says about Jesus, what we know about him is actually true. And so uh, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3. And all this stuff is so simple. You know, when, when, you, when, the, when you go outside and you see trees starting to shake, Right? You say, oh, man, that was the wind. Did you see the wind? No, but you saw the effects of the wind. We get this idea that because I don't see something, you know, I don't see God walking in the room that he must not exist. But you, you don't see the wind, but you believe in it. You don't see oxygen, but I know you believe in Because if you didn't believe it was in here, you wouldn't be in here right now. Right? You know, even when you read the news. You don't always see it, but you believe what you read. And what's wild really shows that the issue is really with our hearts is that when God did walk the planet, his name was Jesus, and he was healing people and he was raising the dead, all these God things people still didn't believe. The issue isn't that God hasn't given us evidence. It's a question of whether or not you want to follow him or not. Years ago, I was, I was witnessing, oh, we were out downtown Atlanta, and uh, I came across two European guys, and you know we're you know we're doing what our 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 team does here, just walking up to people. Hey, man, if you were to die, where you end up? And 
start talking to him about Jesus. And this guy's like, man, well, I don't get it. You know, why doesn't God just come down and just walk around and tell people that he's God? I said, he did. He kind of was like, oh, like, yeah, he did. At some point, you do have to make a decision about whether or not your heart is going to be soft enough to God to believe. And that's a big issue. You know, because even as we go through this, God's going to show you some things, I believe. And when, you, when he does, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. Say, okay, I'm open to it, God. Let me see. And he will. All right, let me get back to what I was trying to do. Number two, the Bible is a miracle from God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So all Scripture, all, all Scripture. Scripture, of course, is holy writings. And, of course, if you... I don't have time to get into. I really had it in my notes to go here today, but I'm glad I didn't because I would we've been preaching forever. But how we actually got the Bible, that's a whole nother conversation that I would love to get into. But we do know that what we have right now, those 66 books are considered scripture. And Jesus is saying that all of it is inspired by God. Or if you were to look up the word inspired or even the phrase inspiration of God, because that's what the King James says, it means divinely breathed in or God breathed. And and so think about this. If I had a balloon up here today and I breathed in it, it would be full of me, wouldn't it? And what God did was he took Scripture and he breathed in it. And that's why the Bible says it's full of life. When you get a hold of it and you apply it to your life, God is able to do some things in your life, right? And so that's why the Bible says his words are medicine to your flesh. The Bible is God breathed. That's what it says about itself. It came straight from the mouth of God. Now, some people say, I don't believe that the Bible was written by men. Well, if you study not only what Paul said here, but, and I won't take you there, but in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about how we got it. Holy men of God wrote as they were led by the Holy Ghost. And what you get from that is that what God did was that God spoke into men's hearts and had them write down what he said. Now, some people, I don't know if I believe that. Well, you know, I don't believe that's possible. Well, I have my phone here, and if I were to do this, I don't trust Siri right now. But if I were to speak to Siri and say, hey, Siri, you know what? Tell me the temperature, Siri. It's currently 53 degrees. Thank you. Thank God for 53 degrees too, man. That's better than 30-something. Well, if man can create something that it can speak to, that can understand what it's saying and give you the right answer, You mean to tell me that God couldn't speak to some men and have them write down what he said? Yeah, that's what he, and he says, that's what I did. Jesus said this. Jesus answered saying, it is written. And notice that Jesus actually uh, said it is written many times. You can find that multiple times in the Bible. But he says, it is written, man shall not live by every by bread alone, but by every word of God. What's he referring to when he's talking about every word of God? Scripture. He's referring to Scripture. You know, in the book of Acts, there's at least 56 times that God is referred to as the author of the Bible. 56. And as we already said, you know, the Bible also said over 50 times that, that it is written. In the New Testament, it was said, It is written, it is written, it is written. So Jesus and Paul and Peter, they all kept pointing back to the Old Testament saying, God said this, God said this, God said this. So it's clear that the Bible is saying that it came directly from God. But you know, once again, people can say, I don't know about that, right? I'm not sure if if I believe that. So let's, let's go a step farther and let's ask a few questions that will help us come to that conclusion. Because, you know, critics like to say things like the Bible has been changed or it's a book of fables or it's a book of contradictions or it's 
no different than any other holy book such as the Quran or uh, but Jesus of course said no it's from God and you're to live by it so who's right we're going to ask let's, let's let's look at three questions and let me say this i remember years ago i did a video and uh it's probably still on youtube and it was talking about you know proving god exists proving about the bible and you know uh, I, I made the mistake of leaving the comments open. And a bunch of atheists got a hold of it. So they just started going back and forth for their little silly arguments. And one of them was like, you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. And I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. What are you talking about? If you were to pull out any ancient book, you were trying to determine whether any ancient book is accurate. You got to look at the book. You're going to examine what's in the book, and that will help you. It's not all that different than if somebody committed a murder and there's a dead body on the ground. Well, the homicide detective, he might look at everything else, but ultimately they got to look at that body to know, well, you know, what happened here? Was there foul play? Was this, were there natural causes? So we're going to look at the Bible to see if the Bible is accurate. So here's the first question then. Is the Bible authentic? In other words, is what was written what we have today? Or did somebody change it? And of course, uh, one of the things the Bible is, is a history book. What is history? It's a knowledge of the past based on true and reliable testimony, right? History can be passed down orally, written, written, it can be written, or it can be physical. So, of course, when we think about history, we can think about things like uh, Hiroshima, World War II, Hitler, we can go all the way back to Alexander the Great and et cetera, et cetera, right? We know all of those things from literary works, right? They were eventually written down, and we were able to read about what happened. And we actually trust that what we have is consistent with what actually happened. How? Because there are some tests that historians use to find out if what is written here today is what actually happened then. And we can use those same tests there. I will tell you this. There really is no literary work more examined and more tested for historical accuracy than the Bible. There are a whole, not only are there books written about what I'm about to talk about, I mean, there are volumes of books. So I can only touch so much. But there are three tests that were given it to determine if a present manuscript is authentic. Uh, and I'm just going to focus on the New Testament. The Old Testament, everyone knows and understands that the Jewish people took that. They preserved that. They know their, their methodology. It's already well proven. Number one is the bibliography test, which is just simply an examination of the textual transmission by which the documents reach us from the past. In other words, the process that, it, that they went through so that we could to, that to make sure that what we, uh, how, how it got to us, let's say it that way. So, of course, we don't have the original paper. We don't have original paper of hardly anything, but we have our copies. So the question then becomes, uh, how many manuscripts have survived? And how consistent are they? We got a lot of copies. Did they say the same thing or did they say about a bunch of different things? And then lastly, what is the time interval between the original writing and the copy? So let's talk about a few historical documents like Aristotle's Poetics. It was written in 343 B.C. The earliest copy that they have is from 1100 A.D. It was 1400 years between the original and the copy. And there are 49 copies that exist. And without a doubt, it is believed to be historically accurate. Caesar's history of the Gallic Wars. Anybody heard of Caesar? Right? Okay, written between 58 and 50 BC. The earliest copy we have was written a thousand years after his death. And we have nine to ten copies. Once again, unquestionably seen as historically accurate. The New Testament is written between 40 to 80 AD. The earliest copy was within 50 to 80 years of the original. Now, I remember with Aristotle's Poetics, it was 1,400 years. 
With with Caesars, it was a thousand years. With the Bible, it's fifty to eighty years. There are fifty-six thousand copies. Remember Aristotle's Poetics. We have forty-nine copies. Caesar's History of Gallic Wars. We have nine to ten copies. The second most copies we have of ancient writings, second in what they call manuscript authority, is a poem called the Iliad. Anybody ever heard of the Iliad? 643 copies. The New Testament has, we have 56,000 copies. Anybody see the difference? Unequivocally, it is, it's known that the New Testament is number one in manuscript authority. Number one which means that basically that it is the most uh, authentic ancient document that we have. If you were to take the position that what we have today is not what was written then, throw out all of your history books because the, more, the Bible is far more proven. That's far more proven about the Bible than it is any other historical document we have going back in time. One individual said that he said the quantity of New Testament material is almost embarrassing in comparison with the other works of antiquity. And I love something that Josh McDowell said. We gave you a book. When you go to, to uh, Growth Track, step one, we give you his book, More Than a Carpenter, and it talks about these type of things. It says if one discards the Bible as unreliably, unreliable historically, then he or she must discard all the literature of antiquity. So clearly what we have today is consistent with what was written then. All right, another question. Is the Bible credible? Okay, you might say what we have is what was written then, but how do you know these people didn't lie? People lie all the time. Anybody notice that people lie all the time? Anybody here want to raise your hand tell the truth? Did you lie all the time? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is it credible? Did the New Testament writers tell the truth? In 2 Peter 1, Peter said this, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of this. Uh, we won't go there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists out all the witnesses of Jesus his resurrection. He talks about the Peter. He talks about the apostles. He talks about 500 other people. He talks about how, of course, he saw him after the fact. And so that's what, that's what the Bible writers say is that we saw this. We're not just telling you what we saw. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, he was a historian actually of the highest degree. You'll find secular historians believe that about him. And he talks about how he got his information from an eyewitness, which is also obviously something that is historically uh, acceptable. But how do we know that it's true? Well, this is, they, they have something called the internal evidence test, which is simply the ability of a writer to tell, the, they understand the ability of a writer to tell the truth is closely related to the witness's nearness, both geographically and chronologically to the events recorded. In other words, you know, they were close to it, they, they, it was, they were close to it in time or they were close to it otherwise, then they're far more likely to be able to tell the truth. Also, um, it refers to eyewitnesses or related accounts of eyewitnesses. In other words, we're looking for information that would stand up in the court of law. And, of course, you understand the court of law, you're the right eyewitness. That one eyewitness could lead to somebody losing their freedom for the rest of their life. All right, so... There are six reasons we know New Testament writers told the truth. Number one, they appeal to knowledge of the secular community. If you were to read Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Acts 26, verse 24 through 26, you'll see them say things like, Jesus, who did miracles among you, which you know. They're talking to a crowd. In other words, if he was telling a lie, they would know he was lying. But he knew he was telling the truth which you know. Nobody said, well, we don't know that. That wasn't the question. Number two, writers included embarrassing details about themselves. 
like the women saw Jesus first. And, and that's interesting because back in that time, a woman's testimony wouldn't, wouldn't stand up in a court of law. So if I'm trying to prove something, get you to believe something that's, that, that, that isn't true, I wouldn't put a woman out there first because you won't believe a woman. We know that's wrong, but that's where the world was then. But they had it. The women were the first ones to see Jesus. They talked about how they had competition for high places. They talked about how when Jesus was arrested, they didn't stand there and, and they weren't ride or die. They were die. I'm running. You're going you to die. I mean, they, 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 Peter, you know, they talked about Peter's denial. They talked about how they didn't believe Jesus was risen from the dead. See, typically, this is the way men work. If I'm telling a story about myself, I have a way of making myself look like the man. I'm not going to make myself look like a fool, but that's what they did. That's a historical test. Number three, they included resurrection events. We'll talk about the resurrection in a few weeks. Number four, they include, get this, more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. In other words, if you were to read through the New Testament, you'll notice this. You probably read past it where it would talk about King Herod or this king or this person or that person or this person. Well, those people all existed in that time frame. We know that from sources outside of the Bible. Number five, they include divergent details, different details. Well, doesn't that mean that they're contradicting each other? No. Think about this. If something happened right now on Brush Street, the news truck showed up, CBS shows up, NBC shows up, Fox shows up, CNN shows up, they all tell a story. They will all tell it from a different viewpoint, but they're still telling the same story. That's what you have with Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, was that you got the same story from different viewpoints. That's actually proof that what we have is actually accurate. And then the last one, which is really strong, is that 11 of them, including Paul, died as martyrs. If you think about it, Peter, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James of Alphaeus, and James of Zebedee, oh, excuse me, were all crucified. James of Zebedee and Matthew were killed by a sword. Thomas was killed by a spear. Thaddeus was killed by arrows. Only John died a natural death, not because they didn't try to kill him, because they couldn't. They did all kinds of things. They couldn't kill him. He had revelation of Jesus as his protector, how much God loved him. Even Jesus, his own brother, literally grew up in the house with him, didn't believe in him at first, but eventually he believed he is who he said he is. He became the leader of the church. Even he died a martyr. And here's the thing. You might say, well, people die as martyrs all the time. Yeah, that's true. People might believe something that's wrong, and they may die for it. But they won't do that if they know they made it up. Come on now, you Peter. They taking you out to crucify you upside down. Because he said, I, I'm not worthy of dying the way my master did. you got to crucify me upside down. You're on the way to being crucified upside down, and only because you believe Jesus rose from the dead and you know you made it up, on the way you'd be like, uh, my bad, dog. We just made this up. I'm sorry. We, we were just playing around. We were just fooling. No, I ain't got the... None of them did that. They all died for it because they were eyewitnesses of it. They knew it was true. And they were willing to give their lives for it. These are just proofs that what we, just once again, a historical proof. I like what the, the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said. He said, the worldly wise do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So everything from Easter morning to the ascension had to be made up by the groveling enthusiast as part of their plan to get themselves martyred. <laughs> so they had to be idiots who did all this just so they could get themselves killed. That doesn't make any sense. That's his point. After examining just six eyewitness testimonies of Matthew, John, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, one professor concluded that the comparison to, in, in comparison to the evidences, evidence of other literatures, literature of antiquity, we have far more and better sources for our knowledge of Jesus of Nazareth. And I like what one historian said. He said that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible 
than any recorded in the Gospels. If you think about it, the message of Jesus has spread throughout the world. Billions believe in him, and we believe these 11 uneducated men just made it up. Nah. Last thing. Y'all doing all right? I know this is a different type of message. I don't usually like giving this much information, but this is the type of message where you got to give information. Last test is the external evidence test. Are there other historical material that confirm or deny the internal testimony of the documents? Is there other history books that say, yeah, those things happen? And the answer is that there are. The writings of Papias, a friend of John, uh, the writings of Polycarp, and, of course, archaeology in itself. Archaeology has confirmed countless passages that critics at one time rejected, and then they found something. And they found out that it was true. In fact, uh, this is true concerning uh, evidence uh, that proves Jesus' crucifixion by the Romans, the fact that Jesus was worshipped as a deity, the fact that the church believed that he was resurrected, the fact that he was the brother of James, and the fact that the tomb was empty on Easter morning. One individual said this, ancient extra-biblical sources do present a surprisingly large amount of detail concerning both the life of Jesus and the nature of early Christianity. I want to read from Revelation 19 as I I close this. Y'all get anything out of this? I'm just trying to help your faith a little bit. And those who don't believe just want to give you evidence. I, I believe because this earth has been designed by God, but I also believe because the Bible is a miracle from God. And, and maybe the strongest case is, is found in Revelation 19 and, and some of those scriptures. It says in verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, No, don't worship me. I'm a servant of God, just like you, and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. Get this. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for who? Jesus. Without getting too deep into this, his point is that you can find Jesus in every book of the Bible. The Bible, this book is simply the story of Jesus. That's what it is. It's the story of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And, and what's really wild is that this book was written, used, God used 66 men, or 60, excuse me, there were 66 chapters, or books, excuse me, written by over 50 authors over a period of 1,400 years without contradiction. If you think you found a contradiction, you got some more studying to do. Every author agrees with one another. Although they lived in different times, they lived in different places, They lived under different circumstances, and every author points to the same man, Jesus. And a lot of these were prophecies, which is why you see the word fulfilled a lot in the New Testament. You see the Bible talking about how this prophecy was fulfilled or that prophecy was fulfilled. You might say, what's a prophecy? It's a prediction. So, In fact, you'll find the word fulfilled 57 times in the New Testament where God had a man predict what was going to happen hundreds of years before it did, and then it did. And this is one of the things that God likes to to use to prove that this book is a miracle. In fact, in John 13, Jesus said this in verse 29 or verse 19. He said, I'm telling you all this ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe that I am who I say I am. And that's what God would do. God would tell people things ahead of time so that now they would, when it happened, they look at them like, man, how did you know that? And uh, one of the best examples happens to be Jesus. Jesus stood, uh, they were walking through the temple one day, and his men are there like, man, look at how beautiful this is. And Jesus said, not one stone will remain. This place is going to be destroyed. And they're like, when is this going to happen? And he tells them, you know, he tells them some of the things that's going to happen in Matthew 24 and in 70 A.D. You know the history. I don't have time to take you through it all. What he prophesied came to, to pass exactly, exactly. And if you actually look at the day we live in today, 
The Bible prophesied about the increase of natural disasters. We, we like to say it's global warming. The Bible says it's a result of greater sin. Uh, when you talk about the increase of wars, when you talk about uh, how people have changed, how, you know, even in the last 30, 40 years, morals have gotten a lot worse. You know, and the Bible talks about all of that. We'll probably get into that in our next series. You know, this was all prophesied. But ultimately, we, we started by saying the Bible is a book about Jesus. Well, there are 109 distinct prophecies about the man who would be considered the Son of God in the Old Testament. And any historian will tell you, whether they believe in God or not, that the book of Isaiah and the book of Micah and the book of Malachi were written hundreds of years before Jesus came. These prophecies told us that he would be born of a virgin. This prophecy told us he'd be born in this little, tiny, small town. I don't even know if it's 10 miles called Bethlehem. These prophecies told us he would be crucified when they didn't crucify people like that back then. It, was, it wasn't a normal thing. These prophecies told us he would be betrayed for the amount of money he was betrayed for. I mean, 109 prophecies about one man's life. The odds of it at those actually coming to pass is more than one quadrillion to one. In fact, the odds of 20 coming to pass is more than one quadrillion to one. But history tells us that all 109 prophecies came to pass in the life of one man who happens to be the most famous, most impactful man in the history of the world. His name is what? All that's coincidence? Oh, man, it's proof that everything that God said about Jesus is true. Everything the Bible said about him is true. Bible prophecy alone proves that there is one who sits outside of the world who sees the end from the beginning and who gave us a book so that we can know him through his son Jesus. The God of the Bible is real. Thank you for tuning in to another Faith Experience podcast. Remember, God has a future for you.